just past 7 o'clock, and here we go. Monday night, we are so fired up. It's time for Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, not in studio with us. There's a good reason for this, Ira, and you did everything you could uh, to be back in time, but you are out and about. No, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, we're taping the show just a couple hours early because I have a 6.30 flight back to West Palm Beach. There's not a lot of flights direct from Greenville to West Palm. <laughs> and uh, But, I, you know, Deshaun Watson was able to negotiate a $235 million guaranteed contract over five years. I was able to negotiate a 4 o'clock checkout time at a hotel for free, which is just, to me, the most <laughs> more important thing. So I cannot believe I can stay in this hotel at the, uh, the Marriott Suites or whatever in, uh, in Greenville. But I love Greenville, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina. It is, I just love the city. It's been great. I saw great games last night between Duke and Miami, and uh, it was just fun. It's just been great. I just uh, flew in yesterday and going to fly out today. It's just been amazing. Ira, normally I've got someone banging on my door at 10 a.m. to get me out of there, but you managed to finagle it to stay six hours past uh, a normal checkout time. I'm really impressed with that. They're friendly here. This town is full of friendly people. I swear, they are so friendly. Everyone here is so nice. They're so happy. The tournament, they had the regional tournament here for the NCAAs. Um, I can't believe how nice the airport is. The airport doesn't look like an airport. It's so pretty. It's brand new. Um, and the, the bars were great. I mean, you can go to a bar at, uh, at last night after the game. It was like 12.30, 1 o'clock. They're still serving food. They have all the basketball game, the game on, the Arizona game on, at the go on TCU game on at 1 in the morning. The sound's on. And I'm saying, can I order something now? They're like, fine, sure. We serve till 2. Can't go into New York anywhere and get food at two <laughs> o'clock now. So I think this is. Uh, it's, I just love this city. It's beautiful, and uh, glad you know was, was able to fly in here for the games yesterday. I can't wait to uh, talk all about that. I love. Uh, I love hearing about your experiences, especially in cities you're not super familiar with. Uh, Seven forty-five. We're gonna have an excellent uh, historian author join us. His name is Clayton Truder. Uh, Clayton is going to be on. We taped this a couple of weeks ago. I was waiting for the right time to put him on, but considering he's talking about Loserville, this book about Loserville, which is a great book about Atlanta, about how they got the teams, how they got all these great teams, all their sports teams came at one time, building the stadiums. And I think Atlanta is considering now that they traded Matt Ryan, their star quarterback, and they're in total rebuild, and they traded Freddie Freeman this week. It's like if you're an Atlanta fan and your, your Hawks are in 10th place, you're like, this is exactly what Atlanta is. So now they might get the, the term Loserville, even though they, they have the highs and the highs, and now they're going to have the lows and lows again. So it's a, we had a great interview and we said to have Clayton on the show. And it, it was a great interview. I learned, you know, I didn't realize that the Calgary Flames hockey team was originally the Atlanta Flames and they kept the, na- you know, kept the name and everything, which is crazy to think about. But it's an interesting book about how uh, that city got started to where it is. We'll talk to you. And him. when Atlanta got the hockey team, there was not an ice rink yeah. in all of the state of Georgia <laughs> except in the place where they played, which is crazy. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard to draw fans when there's not a single rink around for kids uh, to play in. So yeah, Clayton Trudeau, he'll join us. At 7.45. Um, Ira, you mentioned it already, talking about Deshaun Watson. The NFL, here we are in the midst of, you know, the NCAA tournament, which usually, you know, takes over everyone's uh, TV screen. The NFL does a great job of keeping itself at the forefront. And I think we're in the middle of the craziest offseason I've ever seen. Ira, I can't remember anything like this. It by far is the craziest, and it's the fact is that the quarterback position means so much, and then you have star quarterbacks, name quarterbacks, and, and now teams are moving around. It is just un, it is a soap opera. It is it is at best reality TV you could imagine, and uh, and certainly the Sean Watson is going to lead the story this week because we've been talking about the Sean Watson. It seems like forever, and he was uh, and, and he was traded. 
So we, the reason we were talking about him was pending criminal um, criminal issues. So far, they're saying he's not going to be charged criminally. We don't know what's going to happen personally. We don't know what the NFL is going to do. But as soon as that happened, Ira, the dominoes started to fall into place. And everyone who's been in the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes crept back up. And one of the things that I thought was weird about it was, you know, first it was coming out, he's going to the Panthers. Then it says he's narrowed it down to the Saints or the Falcons. Then out of nowhere, out of right field, he's a Brown all of a sudden. I did not see that coming. But here goes Deshaun Watson on his way to Cleveland, and he's getting a boatload of money as well. Yeah, I mean, he was all, understand, he was under a market contract. He had just signed a $180 million contract. He decided he didn't want to play two years ago with, uh, with the Texans. Has that he was, then, then the, the civil cases started coming, 22 civil cases against him from massage therapists. And then the criminal case started. And then the moment the criminal case was over, whenever they said there was going to be no criminal charges, but still there's 22 civil charges, that let the dominoes of all this quarterback ever, ever going. And I, the, the reason why he is a Cleveland Brown is because they decided to rip up the contract that he had, which was a, a really an above-market contract to begin with, signed him to $235 million guaranteed over five years, which is $80 more million guaranteed than any other player. This is more than Mahomes was guaranteed. So this is the biggest contract you could imagine, and that's why he decided to waive his he had a no-trade clause and waive that. It seems like every team was offering him the three number ones, and they, they, the trade was packaged were about the same, and it was for up for Watson to decide where he wanted to go, and that's why he decided to go to Cleveland because it, it doesn't make much sense. I mean, you're going, you could have gone to Atlanta and New Orleans and played in a dome or Carolina, which is where he played in college, and instead he's going to Cleveland in the AFC in the north, and it's cold. Trust me, I go, I've been to all these places to see <laughs> football games. Cleveland is freezing cold. It's in October and it's cold, and it's windy and everything, and so he decided to go there, but it was really because they ripped his contract up, and, Gary, and, it's, and they wrote the contract in a way that next year he's only paid base salary $1 million. So he gets paid because they, they assume he's going to be suspended from 6 to 12 games, 8 games, or whatever. So, but then after that, his base salaries are $46 million. So they actually wrote the contract protect him in case, you know, to see if he gets suspended, he won't lose so much money, only a mil- for a million dollars. And it's what, you know, you, you talk about playing there. He explicitly said he didn't want to play in the cold. And now he's going to, to Cleveland, which as we know, and it, you know, it's not like, you know, with the exception of you guys who are, you know, trying to figure out the quarterback position may have found it. This is a pretty good division. It's not like you don't have the, uh, you know, Super Bowl, uh, AFC champions and, um, and uh, the perennial, you know, perennially good team and Lamar Jackson in Baltimore. Had he gone to a Carolina, there's a lot more openings in that division. So let's talk about, you know, I thought Carolina was the destination. After he attended school in the Carolinas at Clemson, I thought it was a natural fit because he's going to be loved by the fans there already. Right. I thought so, too. I thought Carolina was the place where it was going to go. And then but when they he eliminated Carolina first, and then it was down to Atlanta, New Orleans, and then, and then changed. I mean, the one thing, we've talked about Deshaun Watson for years. I, I was there in terms of following in his career, college career, 2015, 16-star Clemson quarterback. I remember in 2017, he beat uh, in the, the championship game, he beat Alabama. Uh, he had his junior, he had 41 touchdowns, 17 interceptions. Uh, sophomore year was third place for the Heisman behind Derrick Henry and Christian McCaffrey. And as a junior, he was second place, the Heisman behind Lamar Jackson. Um, 
key thing to note is that when he went to the pros in his first year rookie year with Texans was were really positive. He actually, the pick they drafted him was the 12th pick. Mitch Trablitsky, who's with the Steelers, was the second, and Mahomes was the 10th. And, uh, but he went, the Browns traded that pick to the Texans for him to draft for that. Um, but his rookie year, he tore his ACL. And this is what people are concerned. I mean, he did have an ACL tear. I mean, so does Tom Brady and other quarterbacks have had, but he did have that early in his career. The second year, they were 11 and 5, 26 touchdowns, nine interceptions. Third year, another good year, 10 and 5, 26 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. And that's when they blew that 24, they were in the playoff game, the 24 nothing lead over the Chiefs. They blew it and they lost 51 to 31 in that game. And then the fourth year was a complete, was sort of a, dis- a disaster on a record wise. They were only 4 and 12. He had 33 touchdowns, 7 interceptions, almost 5,000 yards. And then, but they still signed him to that big contract. They signed him to the contract, and then you have all the issues with the, and then he decided he wanted to get traded. It was just the craziest offseason for him. And the point is, is that, again, his overall career record is 28 and 25. His record in the postseason is one and two, and they somehow have guaranteed this amount of money to him. And that's what uh, I just, I don't know. I, I've watched this on, I, I had a lot of fantasy players, and when you tend to watch the Texans that fourth year when you have fantasy players on their team, uh, he fumbled the ball. He, has, he fumbles the ball a lot. He has fumbles, averages 10 fumbles a year. Now, he only loses like three or four a game, which is still higher than most any other quarterback. But I felt like, again, I thought it was 4-12. I thought the team was better than 4-12. and 12. I think that he had a very bad year that year. So I think he's a good quarterback. I don't think he's that elite-level quarterback that other people do. I, I just, I'm not putting him in the level of Mahomes, but he's being paid like that, so he's being viewed as a Rodgers, Mahomes, you know, in that level. The only break I'll give him there, Ira, is that there was – some inconsistency with um, his receiving options. Obviously, he had DeAndre Hopkins, which doesn't hurt. But after that, it was pretty thin. The line was just bad. The line was the entire time he was in Houston, he was running for it. That doesn't make up for fumbles. You still need to be able you know, not lose the ball. But I think it was because I believe he he led the league in yards that year when they were 4-12. and 12. Granted, he's throwing from behind. But I'm thinking that's what they're, they're basing this off of. Like, well, if he could lead the league in yards – with nothing, you know, really in front of him, what could he do on a good team? Now going to Cleveland, he's got a line and he's got a running game and he's got a defense. So I don't, I mean, this team's definitely a playoff team now at the bare minimum, right? Well, I think what's happened is, I, look, Brady goes to the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers don't do anything in the playoffs for, like, forever, and suddenly they take it to the Super Bowl and they win. Stafford is traded to the Rams. Now, the Rams had been in the Super Bowl, but they put him over the top. I think it's clear that these teams realize that the quarterback is that extra. We can play around in a lot of other positions, but if we can get this, the right quarterback that we want. And the Browns, who haven't been in the Super Bowl, they've never been to the Super Bowl. And the last time they won a championship was before I was alive. And they are desperate to win, and they felt Baker Mayfield was the right and I, I thought Baker got a lot of criticism because when it was first announced that he was gonna he was you know that it was an off possibility he demanded a trade but then when they were ridden off they said well we still want to keep you and Baker said I don't want to play and people were mad at Baker for everything and then in the end <laughs> Baker now no one's criticizing Baker for criticizing the situation and now Baker doesn't have a have a job really because they have to trade him somewhere um, but that was look it, I I'm excited to see how this, as a Steelers fan, oh, it's like, again, more, you're right. We have Joe Burrow in the division, Lamar Jackson in the division, Deshaun Watson in the division, and we have Mitch Trublitsky and Mason Rudolph. It's just not, <laughs> we don't have the firepower. I really think the Steelers this year, we'll talk about this throughout the whatever months to come, but they, I've followed everything they're making. They are, this could be the bad, this could be the four-win Steeler team. Like, this could be the year it's a disaster because just the, the competition is so great, and especially in the division they have to play these teams two times every year that's like could be six straight losses 
I have a little bit more faith than you, but yeah, I can't wait to talk more about this uh, as the season rolls on. You brought up Baker Mayfield, and he's obviously who we have to talk about next because what happens to him now? I mean, this was a really weird situation, too, where they were you know, looking for Deshaun Watson behind his back. They can't get Deshaun Watson, they think. So he's like, you know, what am I, chopped liver? I want to trade. They say no. <laughs> now they're going to trade him, of course. I don't know where he's going to go. The whole situation is just kind of a mess, and I kind of feel bad for the kid. Well, I think we're going to talk about the QB carousel going on. But Mayfield's now the starting quarterback that really there are places that he could find him. And there's, 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 there's teams. I mean, well, I'll just jump through it and run. Right now, Jimmy Garoppolo is available, but he's and start having surgery for the, the 49ers because they want to move to Trey Lance. But people are afraid to trade for him. Marcus Mariota is in the backup, it seems like, for three years for Derek Carr in the Raiders is, is technically available. But who, you know, Buffalo, Josh Allen has a quarterback. New England, Matt Jones has a quarterback. Uh, Miami, Tua, Jets, you guys, uh, Zach Wilson, hopefully. So we talked about Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Baltimore. Tennessee, I mean, everyone wants to get Ryan Tannehill out. I mean, who are you ever going to – Ryan Tannehill looks super compared to these other quarterbacks that are potentially available. And then we're going to talk about Indy in a second. And then Houston seems like they want to be in rebuild mode forever with Davis Mills. Jacksonville has as Trevor Lawrence. And then you have the West teams, you know, Casey, Vegas, Chargers – in Denver, between Russell Wilson going to Denver, Justin Herbert for the Chargers, Derek Carr with the with the Raiders, and uh, Mahomes for the Kansas City. I just it's it it doesn't seem any can go anywhere in the AFC, and then in the NFC, uh, the Rams have their quarterback Arizona, Kyler Murray, San Francisco. We talked about I guess Seattle. They have Drew Locke at quarterback. They clearly, Baker could go to Seattle. And now Atlanta, with the situation there, doesn't have a quarterback. He could potentially move to Atlanta or challenging Carolina. Uh, but Chicago has Justin Fields. Detroit seems like they're set this year with Jared Goff. Giants have, uh, you know, Daniel Jones. Washington traded for Carson Wentz. Philly, Jalen Hurts. Dallas, Dak Prescott. You're really set. It, it just seems like you're looking at Atlanta, Carolina, or Seattle, where Baker could go to. Well, one of the reasons, well, the reason that uh, Atlanta has a vacancy is just uh, moments ago, it was announced that Matt Ryan was traded uh, to the Colts for a third-round pick. And this one, Ira, I, I think I'd rather have Baker Mayfield than Matt Ryan at this point. I, Matt Ryan had some pretty good games last year. He had some terrible games. I know he didn't have much to throw to with that team, and the Colts are in a much more win-now position uh, than than uh, the Falcons surely were. But I don't know. I, I think that I think I would have rather had. Uh, I think I would have rather had Baker here. They're, they're, look, Ryan is 36 years old. He's not 40-some, and he's took him to the Super Bowl in 2016 with the MVP. Since then, he's had five fairly good years, 10 and 6, 7, 9, 7, 8, you know, just average years. But his our yardage and everything is, is up there. And I think it was, it was a point when he was going to be traded, where they were going to put Watson to Atlanta. I think that his agents then said, okay, you don't want me anymore in Atlanta. You're doing a full rebuild. And the Colts, they tried it with Phillip Rivers two years ago. They've tried it with – and it sort of worked, and they tried it with Carson Wentz. They're, they are in the, they're in the win-now mode, and they feel, unlike these other teams, are like, if we just get a serviceable quarterback that's not going to turn over the ball to Jacksonville in the last game of the season a zillion times and make stupid plays, we have a great running game, a great offensive line, one of the best defenses in the league, which wasn't really good against Jacksonville. But their confidence is Matt Ryan is just we – need, we, need, we need a professional quarterback, and we're going to win the Super Bowl and win the AFC. That's their position. We don't need Patrick McCombs. We just need a very good quarterback. Quarterback, and I think that's the, why they moved. They traded for only a third-round draft pick, so re- they were able to get him compared to what uh, Deshaun Watson went for with three first-round picks. No, and I agree with you on that. And I don't know if you heard this, but the rumor is that uh, Jim Ersay told 
you know, the the uh, the leadership of the Colts, he's the owner, told him, I never want to see Carson Wentz again after that game. <laughs> like, make sure when I get here for, for training camp, he's not in the building. And he's not. Um, <laughs> he's over at Washington now. And if I'm Washington, I'd rather have Baker Mayfield. But now, obviously, that's, uh, that's sealed there. Um, but yes. I do like, can I, I want to say this. I... Baker Mayfield, understand, he was a walk-on at Texas Tech. Texas Tech wouldn't give him a he wouldn't give him a scholarship. He then became the starting quarterback and was a superstar at Texas Tech. Then he left when they won and brought someone to challenge him. He says, I'm leaving Texas Tech. I'm gonna go to Oklahoma. So he just walks on Oklahoma. Then suddenly he goes in there, he's a three year starter. He was thirty through touchdowns, like forty touchdowns, eight interceptions, forty three touchdowns, six interceptions, played absolutely amazing at Oklahoma, won the Heisman trophy. And so he, so he proved it. Then he became the first pick in the NFL draft. So Baker has shown that whenever he's been completely written off, he's walked on two schools. And so I think that, you know, if he can find the right position. Now, last year he was hurt. He had a torn labor, and he stayed and played all year. He could have sat out, but he sort of stayed and played. And I know he's famous for his regressive commercials, which are amazing and those things, but I'm just not ready to write Baker Mayfield off. I just There's too much fire in him, and, he, and, I, and he's shown before. I mean, he went from being just a walk-on to being the first pick in the NFL draft and winning the Heisman Trophy. No, listen, if, if anyone who's been good when their back's against the wall, it's Baker, hasn't really produced at the NFL level. And people would say he's got a pretty good team there. It's not like he got drafted to, to a, you know, a bum squad. We'll see what happens. I'm not going to be surprised if he does catch on somewhere else and ends up having a pretty decent, you know, middle-of-the-road career. Kind of like what we saw from Matt Ryan for, for 20 years. Um, do you want to move on to Devontae Adams? Because this one, I, yeah. I, I didn't... I didn't believe it when I saw it. This was just baffled me that I saw Devontae Adams just, you know, a day after Aaron Rodgers signs the biggest quarterback contract ever, get shipped out of town to to uh, Vegas. Blew my mind, Ira. For a first-round pick and a second-round pick. Now, what happened is that the, the Packers had franchised him. He was still technically under their control because they can put a franchise tag on him, and they locked him in, and he did not like that. But everybody assumed that he and uh, Aaron Rodgers were communicating. This whole thing was, if you come, I'm going to come back. If you leave, I'll leave. But there was absolutely no communication, and I think that this is where I have a criticism of Aaron Rodgers has been. Mike Cannabone goes on ESPN and talks about this all the time, where Aaron Rodgers waited so long to make his decision, where Aaron, Rod- Aaron Rodgers should have been for those months after the season. He should have been focused more on. He should have been focused more on uh, trying to uh, get Devontae Adams to, to come back rather than to like keep waiting. And, and Devontae Adams got his money. He got a five-year, 140 million guarantee. You know, 66 million dollar guaranteed contract. It was a great move for for Devontae Adams in terms of you know the money wise and. Derek Carr, people forgot, he played, he went to Fresno State. Derek had caught 102 passes one year, 131 another one, uh, you know, 14 touchdowns and 24 touchdowns. That was his roommate and it was college quarterback. So that's where he played so well with at that time. And, and that part totally makes sense to me. Once you see that come out, like, oh, okay, like now I, I totally get why he would want to go there. What's weird to me, Ira, is, you know, when this news came out, I started texting everybody I know, like, Rogers is going to retire. Then it comes out that, Rodgers signed the contract knowing that they were going to trade Devontae. So he knew, he was taking this on knowing I have no wide receivers at all. And he throws the ball 95% of the time to Devontae. I don't know what the plan is now. And it's making me think that... He wants the money a lot more than he wants to win at this point because exactly, it doesn't make sense. Exactly what it is. I mean, he had 
this is Devontae Adams, the last years, the four or five years, 111 catches, 83 catches, 115 and 123. 1,500 yards every year. He stays health, relatively healthy compared to every other wide receiver. This is one of the greatest five-year runs, if not the I mean, Jerry Rice, Antonio Brown level. Even It's longer than what Antonio Brown had. It was tremendous. And, this, and their, his complaint was they need another wide receiver. Now you're losing Adams. You have no wide receivers. And it's so funny is that during the period of time, the Rams signed Allen Robinson from the Bears. Russell Gage was a wide receiver for Atlanta. Uh, Tom Brady was calling him up on the phone. I guess yeah. even when he was retired, he was calling Russell Gage up and talking to him. So the point is, is that this is Shakespearean. Everybody thought that Rodgers and Adams were like, you know, they were great. They loved each other. This was the best thing in the world. And it wasn't. Adams was mad. Adams wanted the contract wrapped up last year. He was sick of the drama. As much as everyone said, we're sick of the drama, Adams probably was more sick of anyone of the drama. And he's happy now. He goes to Vegas. No state income tax. Supposedly, he bought a house in Vegas months ago. So even before yeah. he knew that he wanted to go there anyway, and his agents worked these agents worked the deal out, and that's what it's huge. And for Derek Carr, that's what they were missing. I mean, you're talking about a team wanting that; it's perfect. They had Hunter Renfro. Now you team Adams with Renfro, uh, just with Josh Jacobs and Darren Waller. Back with Waller a tight end. Yeah. Oh, I mean, just amazing. And uh, and so and and you're right. And Rogers signed the contract. Knowing he just really wanted the money, he took the most amount of money he could possibly get, probably the more. But and then because of that, they didn't. But but also it was not just the money he took; it was the waffling and delaying which messed everything up. Whereas Brady's waffling and delaying in retirement really didn't hurt the the uh, <laughs> the, the uh, Buccaneers at all. No, it's it's funny how that worked out. Speaking of Brady, did you hear about the Gage thing that Russell Gage didn't believe it was really Tom Brady? He thought there was someone was prank calling him. Phone call, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would think that too. You know, Russell Gage's not a, a massive name, good player, but I, I thought that was uh, really interesting. We wish Devontae luck. And this division now, Ira. Oh man, <laughs> AFC West. They also brought in um, uh, what's his name from Kansas City? Uh, no, uh, Chandler Jones from uh, Arizona. So they added, they have two stud defensive ends, maybe the best receiver in football. This team's going to hang there with the Chiefs, I think. I don't know what their record's going to be, who's going to win that division, but the, it's not the NFC West anymore to me. It's the AFC West is the best in football. No, I mean, it's you, you're, you only have allowed three wild cards, and you just went from the AFC, you're wondering who is not going to be in it. That's what I'm saying from the Steelers' perspective. It's like there's, a, there's only seven teams making the playoffs, and you have 12 teams that think they can, or 10 teams that think they're going to win the Super Bowl. So really, you do have a competition because you have these teams that are, have these great quarterbacks, and you're going to have, I mean, Joe Burrow and the Bengals might not even make the playoffs, and they might be good, feel better yeah. next year, and that's how good the <laughs> AFC is going to be next year. So realizing that you need uh, pass rushers in this league, especially you know once you get to the once you get to the playoffs and you're playing big boy quarterbacks, the Buffalo Bills they know that they're really close, and that's another piece they needed. Brought in Von Miller. Well, I think the Bills, and we're going to talk quickly just about whatever happened because this is the time for free agents. What the Bills did was by bringing Von Miller in, they and also signing two more defensive tackles, they realized in that game against Kansas City, the problem was not the kickoffs and this and that. Our problem is we could not stop Kansas City, that they could score whenever they wanted, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to upgrade that defense in terms of whatever. And that's, what, again, the Bills, they already have their star quarterback. They have their star wide receivers. In their mind, we just have got to fix our defense so we don't have Mahomes score in 18 seconds again. So that's why they made that move. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, 745. We will talk to author, historian Clayton Truder. It's going to be interesting. A couple of other signings we need to touch on here before we move on. You mentioned Allen Robinson to the Rams. Very quietly, Juju Smith-Schuster joining the Chiefs. Yeah, I mean, that. I, as someone who's a big Juju fan, uh, who's had some couple injury-plagued years for the Steelers, 
I really like that move for the Chiefs. I think he's perfect. I think they're going to use him. He's only, what, 24, 25 years old. Uh, and people think he's been in the league because he came to the league when he was 19 years old. But he is tremendous. I, this, I think that he is going to make a difference with Tyreek Hill on the side. And with Holmes passing in the ball, you're going to see. I think it was a great signing. And uh, they were miss- after they lost Sammy Watkins, they were sort of missing that number two wide receiver. They used Kelsey as really not Kelsey and Hill are the one and two. But they were missing that other wide receiver. I think Juju on a one-year deal was perfect for them and a great move for Kansas City. Yeah, and this one, Juju's best years were with Antonio Brown on the other side. He's maybe shown that he's not a number one, truly, but he's a fine, fine high-end number two. And then if you just want to mention your Steelers real quick, I like the pickup of Mount Miles Jack. Well, it was a weird. They're losing a lot of players. Miles Jack, Jacksonville, has made so many changes. And we're seeing these signings. You're seeing teams sign certain players and then release. It's really hard until you have to see, wait, we signed this, we signed this, but who did you lose? They're not trades. But there's so many free agents. It's just so hard to figure out. Like, I, even myself, I have to go through and say, wait, who do the Steelers lose? Who, who they brought in to bring Jack in? Um, so it was, a, it was a good signing. Again, the Steelers seem to be signing these players like on a two-year, $16 million uh, total contract to say, like a make-good type deal. But Jack was one of the leading tacklers for Jacksonville. So that was a good signing and, and teaming with T.J. Watt. The question is, can Devin Bush, their linebacker, the first-round pick a couple years ago, after his ACL tear, hasn't really come back so much. So I'm just nervous about that. The Steeler defense was good last year, not great, uh, but their offense without a good quarterback is going to be a, you know, they'll have to score a lot. All right, Ira. Well, NFL did its job of uh, keeping themselves very prominent in the news while the NCAA tournament is going on. You've been a part of it as well. And I guess I'm pretty proud of myself. I picked seven of the Sweet 16 teams. So (laughs) that's pretty good for, for my standards. Where do we stand here in the NCAA bracket? Um, well, just generally, I mean, it was the, 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 the brackets to go forward is just, it, we, we're down to the, you know, I was going to run through the tournament a little bit. Let's go, let's go in the West. Gonzaga, go, you know, Gonzaga and Arkansas now are going to play in the West at, at, the, at that first game when I'll be out there for the tournament. But Memphis pulls, Memphis almost had Gonzaga. They had Gonzaga down and Drew Timmy were down 10 points at half. And Drew Timmy, the Gonzaga Star Center, uh, said, you know, we're not going to lose like this. We're going to come back. And he scored, it seemed like, 20 straight points in the second half, upsetting Penny Hardaway's Memphis team. So that was a good win for them. But that, they almost went out. Arkansas has been surprising. They, I thought they were going to lose to Vermont. Verm- they barely beat That was one of my upsets. They barely beat them. And then they went and they played New Mexico State. Did look good in that game. I really like Gonzaga to pull away. I don't think Arkansas can play with Gonzaga. I think Gonzaga is going to go through in that game. And then... Notre Dame was surprised. They upset Alabama at 11-6, and and then they ended up playing Texas Tech. Uh, Tech had a good win. Tech is a good team, and they ended up beating Notre Dame. That's why Tech is going to play Duke. We'll talk about – when we're done with this, we'll run through. I'll talk about the Duke-Michigan State game, which was absolutely tremendous. So you're going to have Texas Tech, Duke, and then Gonzaga play Arkansas. And then in the East, uh, in the East Division, you have – you know, what happened there was Baylor – upbeat, of course, easy win against Norfolk State. But then they play North Carolina, and that was the game of the tournament. Baylor is up in the second half with 10 minutes to go by 25 points. They end up blowing that lead after Carolina. They threw Brady Manick, Carolina's star player, out of the game with a ridiculous elbow. He's just boxing out, throws him out of the game, and suddenly Baylor comes back. They send to overtime. I'm thinking, okay, this game's over. There's no way you can have a 25-point comeback, go to overtime. And North Carolina ends up winning the game and going to the Sweet 16. So huge props for UNC. And uh, UCLA... Uh, they beat Akron, and then they, uh, they surprised me. They, were end, they ended up beating St. Mary's, which I thought St. Mary's was playing. You know, St. Mary's beat Gonzaga this year. I thought St. Mary's was better, but they actually easily won that game. But I still like 
UNC over UCLA in that in that game that's coming up with the Sweet 16. And then Purdue uh, played Texas yesterday. Purdue ended up, that was a good game. I watched that at the end of it on TV. And they won 81-71. And then the upset of the tournament was St. Peter's over Kentucky. Uh, St. Peter's is a 30-point underdog that it seemed like in that game. Uh, their coach makes 250000 a year. Calipari makes $9 million a year. And they, they went to overtime just thinking, okay, Kentucky got them to overtime. They'll win that there. St. Peter's wins in overtime. Then they upset Murray State. So St. Peter's is the Cinderella tournament, 15th seed. I think the fifth time that's happened, and they made it to the uh, they made it to the final to the Sweet 16, where they're going to play Purdue. You got to think Purdue's going to beat St. Peter's, and then you're going to have UNC beating UCLA. But so those are that that from those from the that's the West and the East bracket, and then in the South, um, you know, I, Arizona was a team coming in. You know, the number one seed. The game they played last night against TCU was just absolutely I – mean, TCU had this game won. They had it. They had it. They had it totally won, and uh, Arizona was able to drain the three at the end and then take it to overtime and win the game. But that was just an amazing game. And TCU and Jamie Dixon should get a lot of credit for really, really playing well. I mean, Benedict Matherin for Arizona played an absolutely like, NBA-level type of game. And then they're going to end up playing Houston, who beat Illinois. Now, Illinois, I thought they were going to lose to Chattanooga. They beat Chattanooga, and then they end up playing Houston. And that was a messy game. But Houston's a small team, one of the smallest teams in the uh, in the NCAA's, and, they, and Cookie Copborn is the star for Illinois, uh, big center. And Houston was able to out rebound them, really, which is shocking. But I still like Arizona to beat Houston, and then uh, Michigan uh, going through upsetting Tennessee. What a run! You know, they beat Colorado State. I think people thought that was going to happen, eleven six. They ended up beating Tennessee, and then which is another big upset. And everyone was hoping Ohio State would beat Nova, and Ohio State lost to lost to, to Nova. Nova's in there, so again, it's still it's a pretty sexy matchup. Michigan and Villanova uh, in that, and I and that one, I, I I really I think I'm telling you, Michigan with Eli Brooks, they are playing well. Like that, I did not sold that Villanova to win this game. I think I would pick Michigan to win this game, probably playing Arizona and Arizona then go to the Final Four, and then the final region is the Midwest, Kansas. Uh, rolled over Southern, beats Creighton in a tougher game than I than I expected, and setting up a game against now Richmond. The key, the team that surprised me was Iowa. Iowa played so bad; they were one of my picks in one of my brackets to go to the Final Four. They, they just got destroyed. They lost to Richmond. Then Richmond came out the next game, doesn't play well. Providence beats them, and so now Kansas plays Providence like Kansas to win that game. And then in the the bottom half of the Midwest division. Um, was of course the Miami Auburn game, which we saw saw yesterday when Miami upsets Auburn, so they made it to the Sweet 16 for the third time in 10 years under Jim Laranega, and they're going to play Iowa State, who upset Wisconsin, 11 seed, a uh, three seed, and and that this game is going to be great. Miami and Iowa State, I like I like Miami. I think Miami's going to go to the Elite Eight and probably lose to Kansas. So that's sort of my run through through the tournament. At this point, I think it's going to be in the Final Four. By next week, we'll have Duke playing. I really like Duke, Arizona, uh, in one uh, playing Saturday night, and then Kansas would play Miami, and uh, and then or I mean Kansas would be Duke, Arizona, then Kansas would win over win that, and then uh, sort of like UNC making it too. So you could have UNC and Kansas, and wouldn't that be amazing in the uh, in the in the semifinals to have Duke play? Uh, Carolina in the uh, semifinals. It, it would be amazing. What a rematch that would be. It'd be uh, great if it worked out. Did you know uh, You know the, the numbers on this? 
So four double-digit seeds made the Sweet 16. That's only happened four times since this started, uh, you know, 30-plus years ago. Um, so, so, you know, congratulations to, like, the Miamis of the world that, that pulled this out and, and made this interesting. It's really fun to watch them. I, you know, we love when University of Miami sports are good. It's better for, better for South Florida. So congrats to them. Uh, anything else we need to touch on here with the, uh, with the tourney? Yeah, I just want to sort of talk about my game at Duke. You know, I thought that was – it was great to come here and to – to see, like, again, this could have, this, at 75, there was a point in the game where it was 70, 65, five minutes ago. I didn't think Duke had played well. And uh, then Pablo Bonchero got a layup, made it 70, 67. Michigan State missed a three. And then T- Jeremy Roach made another layup, made it 70, 69. And they, the key was no stupid threes. And, and that's one of the problems that Dukes have had in the past. They have just shot threes after threes when they really can't make them. And they only for the game. The key, one of the keys was they were five for 13 for three. It wasn't the percent. It was just the fact they only shot 13. Auburn against Miami shot 34 threes. And in the past, that was the problem. They had Zion Williamson. Instead of having Zion just dribble and drive to the basket, they would just shoot. R.J. Barrett would stoop, shoot stupid threes. But I think that was the key. And, um, and then it was like at that point – I think it was then Kills had a, sh- a big three, made it 72-72. And then when Duke was up 75-74 with a minute of like 18 left, Jeremy Roach hit the – there was like no time left on the shot clock. And it seemed like, you know, Duke was totally discombobulated. And Jeremy Roach hit a three, uh, made it 78-74. And uh, it was exciting to be in the arena because there weren't as many Duke fans. It was mostly Auburn fans. I, I sat in the Miami section, and I would say mostly Auburn fans, some Miami fans. Uh, very few Michigan State fans at all, and, and, and a good sense of the Duke fans. But the emotion that Duke, I mean, I was taking pictures of Coach K the whole game. You could see how fired up and intense he was, and his family and, his, and his, uh, his whole, all his grandchildren were sitting behind him and the, and the Duke alums and everything on that side, and you just see the intensity of the game. And i got to give Duke credit. I mean, Duke could have lost this game, but Bonchero uh, and, uh, you know, and Wendell Moore, everything was like they, they did not take the stupid threes. They didn't just go down. They did against Carolina. They losses against Virginia Tech in the AC tournament and against Carolina where they take dumb threes. They let the game get away. They just did not want to – didn't let the game get away. And uh, I thought it was great. I thought it was a great win for Duke over Michigan State. I know his record, uh, Coach K's record, is like 15-3 and three or something over uh, Tom Izzo. It's amazing, even though Tizzo's this Hall of Fame coach. But I thought that was great. And then in the Miami game, I, I got to give a lot of credit. Auburn play came out great. They have a player, Javari Smith, who is considered to be the number one player in the draft, um, potentially with Chet Holgram or Bonchero. He was 3-for-16, 1-for-8-for-3. For uh, this game, Miami went with uh, with small lineups, super small lineups. I mean, Smith is like 6'10", Walker Kessler is 7 feet tall. I was in line, and Walker Kessler's dad was sitting next to me. He looks taller than Walker Kessler was. And uh, they just they out re- they, 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 they lost on the boards, but they still ended up dominating Auburn. I mean, winning by 18 points, and li- literally at the end of the game, Auburn quit. Isaiah Wong played great. Charlie Moore, uh, Karen McCuskey, the guards for Miami were super. And the, and the intensity from the Miami fans, I mean, there was maybe like 2,000, but they were, the, they were so loud. And uh, again, this is, you know, Auburn being a number two seed, losing a game like this, huge win for Miami. And uh, I just, it was just exciting to be there in, this, in their section to watch the game. And then, Ira, I think um, you're going to head out to Duke's next game. I, I think you're going to – is that San Francisco? Yes. Well, we'll see. They, we'll, we'll see uh, they play Texas Tech. I'm not certain, but I'd have to fly out Wednesday night or Thursday morning for the Elite – for the Sweet 16, and if they win that, to go to the Elite 8. But it's weird they put them in the West bracket. You would think that they would go to Philadelphia, which was where the Christian Leitner shot was made, or Chicago, where Coach K's from. 
um, but they sent him out to San Francisco instead. Yeah, no, that, that's uh, unfortunate. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We got just about 10 minutes or so until we get to uh, Clayton Truder here. It's a great interview. Um, Ira, baseball, they came back, and they came out hot and heavy, Ira, and the biggest name is Freddie Freeman. Uh, he was a free agent, and you know he's 32 years old. They'd say he wanted a six-year contract. Yankees were out on that. Atlanta didn't feel like paying the hometown uh, you know, World Series MVP. So he's doing what all great players do. Go over and join the Dodgers. <laughs> that lineup's going to be crazy. Good luck to Freddie Freeman in L.A. Again, it's one of these surprise things where everybody thought Freddie Freeman was going to be a Brave. I mean, he grew up in L.A., but he was drafted in 2017 by the Braves. Uh, to, I mean, 2010. By 2011, he was a starting first baseman. I mean, he's been he's been the most consistent players you could imagine. I looked at his rankings. He was in the fifth for the MVP in 2013. He signed a big contract in 2014. And people always say, "Oh, you signed a big contract. You're not." He signed next year. He was sixth for the MVP. Then he was fourth in the MVP. In 2020, he won the MVP. In 2021, they win the World Series. They Braves offered him a five-year, 140 million dollar contract. But he won in the sixth year. The Braves are owned by Liberty Media. Liberty Media owns, like, Formula One. Like, they own a lot of things. <laughs> They're not poor. Like, they have a lot of money. Like, put them, give them the sixth year. Like, come on. I just couldn't believe that they wouldn't go. Dodgers sweep, swoop in, and swept in, or whatever you want to use the term. And they picked him up. And it was just tremendous. The Dodgers were able to get him. And they put this lineup. And I think this is key. The more I think about it, what the biggest change you're going to see and why a Pirate fan, uh, just, there's no hope, is the Dodgers next year get to use a DH every single time. And the way they, they interchange their lineup with the Chris Taylors, now Freeman can play DH, he can play first base. Muncie, they have Muncie, Freeman, and Bellinger who all can play great first base at, at a gold glove level almost, and they can interchange them. And you have the Gavin Lux. I mean, they literally have for their eight to the players – 10 starters, but they'll be able to move everybody around and all the, because they have nine, actually nine, because you have the DH. So that's what's the advantage, what the, what the Dodgers were able to do with an outfield of Pollock, Bellinger, and Betts. Smith at the catcher, Justin Turner at third, Trey Turner at short. It's just dominating what they're able, how they're, and I think the DH was the big key because Freeman, as he gets older, might not be able to play so much first base, but then they can move him to DH and how they use him. So brilliant move by the Dodgers. And I think a horrendous move by the Braves. They just won the World Series. Like you can't, they've lost, and we're going to talk about the next player. You can't just give away, I just, I just think it's terrible. It's like the Braves have enough money. They should have just paid it. Stupid move. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm with you on this. And we talked about it a few weeks ago. There is no small market team. You could be a small in market. It doesn't mean you're small in revenue. And these teams are making $160 million just by being in the league. You can you can pay these guys. Like, you know, Toronto is considered a small market. They're owned by the ninth biggest company in Canada. Like, don't tell me you're a small market. Same thing like you said. That's Turner Media, right, that owns them or, you know, a big portion of them. These are massive Liberty companies. Media. Liberty Media yeah. owns it. Yeah, they own it. You know, I didn't realize they actually own Formula One also. But the <laughs> point is, yes, it's, 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 I, I just don't get it, and I don't get it on the sixth year. And, and again, I just think, it's, again, it, 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 Freeman has demonstrated year after year that he's been, he doesn't get hurt. He, stays, he plays his games, like I wrote, his games, uh, the last four years, 162, 158, 60, which was because it was the COVID year, when he got COVID and got sick and still came back and played 60 games, and 159. He misses like a game, every, one or two games every year. This is the most durable player. Why in the world would you not have given him the sixth year? Just, I just don't get it. Yeah, so, fa- face of the franchise. He's, he's a Dodger now. So. Yeah, I mean, he's super well-liked, though. It's just... Doesn't make much sense. But what they did do is replace him with Matt Olson, who Matt Olson really has only had one really good year. He had a breakout year last year. 
He got the six-year deal. He's only 27, so that makes a little more sense age-wise. But they were willing to do six years. They got it a little bit cheaper, bringing in Matt Olson from the A's. Right. So, but whatever. I think it was a bad move. <laughs> uh, Trevor Story going to the Red Sox. This one, a little bit weird because... He's come out and said, I want to play shortstop. Well, they're not going to move Xander Bogarts, and so and Rafael Devers is entrenched at third. So Trevor Story likely going to second base or the outfield, which I know he didn't want to do, but I guess he does like money, and he's going to get uh, a lot of it going to Boston. Six-year, 140. And the question is, the question when you all have a Colorado Rocky, is it, is it the weather? Is it the condition? Is the altitude? Is that why he played so well? I mean, clearly he was a better player at home on the road, but someone said he's the next best was in Boston, so we'll see. But uh, the Red Sox, it seems like the Red Sox, they, they seem to make, get lucky. They seem not to get lucky, but they seem to get the free agent signings correct most of the cases. J.D. Martinez, people were questioning, that worked out pretty well. So we'll see about the Trevor Story move to the Red Sox and whether he fits in with that Red Sox culture and and again, as someone who went to a game last year, I went to the Yankees Red Sox game, is a different feel when you go to a Red Sox game. Those fans are obsessed with this team. Like, there is a more pressure. They talk about it. In Colorado, I can't believe there's anywhere near the pressure that's going to be in Boston. And some players can deal with it, and some can't. And, uh, and so it's something to get used to. And, and so, but we'll see if Trevor can handle it. Carlos Correa got kind of a weird deal from Minnesota. And really, nobody wants to play in Minnesota, let's be honest here. Um, so it's a three-year deal with opt-outs after every year. So he really holds his own destiny here. Well, he was looking for the big contract, the 10-year, $300 million. Unfortunately, he had the agent, the way his agent, I told you, he was with Wasserman, then he switched to, to Scott Boris. And Boris wanted to have him sign a contract, which gives it to the old agent. And then next year, when there's not as many, there was a zillion shortstops that were superstars. Next year, he'll come out. He'll clearly, if he has a, a normal year, would opt out. But he gets to pay. He gets paid like forty million. If he has a, an injury, he's still going to get guaranteed one hundred and five. But this is a way you've seen this in a lot of these players doing these three years. Juju Smith-Schuster did a contract like that with this one-year type of deal, where you're going to just a show-me year. Where we're going to make a lot of money, and then we'll go forward. I think Carlos Correa made this move. So no desire to play in Minnesota. I'm shocked why Minnesota made this move. I, again, it seems like they're just, they need to spend money somewhere. Maybe they want to, I don't know. I was more surprised that Minnesota, they found a, this could be another deal. Like, you know, maybe Spora said, if you sign Correa, I'll give you some other of my younger players that'll sign in Minnesota. That was a little surprising. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that was involved. Um, we only have about uh, three or four minutes left here, Ira, until we have to get to Clayton Truder. What's going on with golf? Yeah, just in, uh, Sam Burns won the Valspar second year in a row that he's won the Valspar in Tampa with a good field. You know, Justin Thomas was there, Brooks Kepka, Victor Hovland, Colin Morikawa. Um, the key for me was that uh, Brooks uh, shot, uh, he was in 12th place. Shane Lowry, who's been playing really well, has been 12th place. Uh, Justin Thomas finished in second, we finished third. There's one shot off the lead. Going into the, this is like the one tournament before the Masters because now they played a, a match play event in Texas, the Valero Open that really nobody plays in. So this was interesting to see how these players would perform. Mark Howard didn't play well, which is shocking because he was everybody's favorite to go into the Masters. Hovland finished 33rd, which is his worst finish in a while. Uh, Gary Woodland, who played in the Honda, played well there, has also played well in this. He's, Woodland's been playing this career resurgence has been great. So we're excited to see, you know, John Rom did not play in this. He's the, the favorite. Rom Spieth are the two favorites coming into the Masters. Uh, so we'll talk about the Masters for the next two weeks. But I was just, this tournament was in, in, intriguing for me. I love for the Masters. I love Brooks Kepka, 16 to one, and Victor Hovland at 18 to one. I think Hovland's playing great golf. 
I like him and Brooks at sixteen to one. I, every time, I mean, he's in the main. That's just it's found money. Considering that Rom is seven and a half to one, you can get Brooks at sixteen to one. I think Brooks is a much better chance than Rom to win the Masters. Uh-huh. Tiger is forty to one by if you're looking at that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he is. Uh, you, you made it to a Heat game the past week, and the Heat keep rolling. There, they've won their last uh, two straight. They're now three games up on Milwaukee. Well, there's only three weeks left of the season, and this was sort of like the off week for the Heat. They got to play Detroit and Oklahoma City, two of the worst teams. Um, Jimmy Butler left the game early when I was at, and they and it didn't come back. But I'll tell you what, no one knows how good Tyler Hero is playing around the country. I listen to sports talk all the time. No one's mentioning his name. He doesn't start, so they don't say. He came in, scored 29 points, draining everything. Max Struess is playing great. My mom hated Struess all last year, but I'll tell you what, Struess came in in the fourth quarter, 60 points. No, he scored 11 in the third quarter and came back and beat Detroit, but I love Tyler Hero. I hope that he can get some run. I mean, considering the year that Hero had last year, which was a disaster, and this year, he's by far their MVP. He's playing out of his mind, and uh, it's just exciting to watch. But this week, they're at Philadelphia tonight, and they play Golden State, the Knicks, and Brooklyn at home. So this will be a really interesting week for them after the off week of last week. Anything else to talk about uh, NBA-wise before tennis? Uh, no, just that the Lakers, I'm real intrigued with the Lakers. They're 30 and 41. The Pelicans are 30, 41 and look for the Spurs. They're only two games back. If the Lakers can get knocked out of that, even the play in tournament, it would be the Spurs. All these other teams have given up, but you've got to think that, uh, uh, that, you know, that they were going, that the Spurs are going to try in terms of trying to get that, maybe that 10th spot and, uh, wow, the Lakers, but LeBron is playing absolutely fantastic ball. He's just playing great, but they just continue to lose. The team is completely the massive wrong team, but it would be even, but the worst best case scenario for the Lakers is they, they actually get in the playoff tournament and they see them. They have to play the Suns and the Suns are amazing. People do not realize they are nine games ahead of everybody in the NBA and they've had their own set of injuries. So, uh, but I, but I, that's so. I'm intrigued by what the Lakers and what the Lakers are doing. And LeBron is playing at Cleveland tonight. The return of LeBron in Cleveland. We always talk about that, but it's always exciting when LeBron comes back to Cleveland. Tell us about tennis. Um, well, the big thing in tennis is clearly the Indian Indian Wells, and then Miami is coming up this week. Uh, Nadal played fantastic. He didn't play fantastic. His matches were so exciting. He beat Korda and Alpeca, and then he beat Kyrgyz in one of the craziest matches where Kyrgyz was having these meltdowns and breaking rackets and throwing rackets and classic, like, crazy tennis. And then Nadal loses in the finals to uh, – he beat Carlos Alcaraz, who is his protege from Spain, 18-year-old. And then in the finals, he lost to Taylor Fritz, who was, like, the first American to win any big tournament forever. It's the first time Nadal's lost to American in three years. And Fritz, what a great win. Growing up at Indian Wells, uh, this was a great – Great, great win for him in a, a Masters 1000 event, and it's nice to see Fritz come through. And I bet Nadal was clearly hurt in the finals, and he's going to not going to be. You know, the Miami starts this week and runs through the following week. Uh, there was no Nadal, no Federer. Djokovic couldn't get in because of the vaccine, but we'll see. You know how everybody else plays, and Osaka's playing, Goff is playing. There's enough stars to, to follow it, but we have that. And what about racing? Uh, and well, just real fast in Bahrain, the first Formula One, and everyone loves the name Ferrari, and Ferrari is back. They have a great car. They've been out for the last few years. They finally won it was the first time in like three years. Charles Leclerc won. Carlos Seitz finished in second. And what's interesting is Honda, uh, which is the Red Bull team of uh, Maxi Verstappen and Sergio Perez, 
for Stafford River one last year. I think I said karma got to them because they were racing with Ferrari like neck and neck the whole time, whereas Mercedes with Hamilton was behind. And then something happened to all the, the both the cars, the Red Bull teams, with like a couple of laps to go. Each one of them like stopped running, <laughs> and they ended up finishing in last place. So it was a, it was it'll be interesting that now you have three teams: Ferrari, Red Bull, and Mercedes, all gunning for the title for the Formula One. Let's go to Clayton Truder here. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. We're honored to have Clayton Truder on. Uh, Clayton is an author of a new book that just came out called Loserville. Uh, really like the history of sports in Atlanta, Georgia. Clayton, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Ira. It's a pleasure. So it, my, the book is a great book, and I, I have to admit that I just love reading about stadiums and how stadiums get built and how teams bring things. It's just one of those things I'm just obsessed with. I'm always looking at what the Vegas is doing and, and what Oakland is doing. But you really looked in terms of Atlanta, and, it, and the story of Atlanta was in this, from 66 to 72, they added four sports teams and two stadiums and brought them in, and, and you were able to build that. And the point is they were able to get the – uh, wherewithal from the city and the momentum to build these stadiums, but then nobody came. You know, the whole story of you build it, it'll come, and then it's like they never, and as much as we criticize Atlanta fans even now going to Truist Park in the playoffs, that they've had that problem since the early 70s or late 60s with that, and, and that's one. So that's sort of what I got, the gist I got from your book. Absolutely. I, I see it as an origin story for the modern sports business. Atlanta is really the first expansion city that has no connection to the big leagues whatsoever, that goes out, hypes its way into becoming a major league town. They have a mayor named Ivan Allen who runs explicitly on a platform called Major League City. The idea is he wants Atlanta to have the prestige, the sense of civic unity of having pro sports. So the city goes out, they lure the Braves, they lure the Falcons, the Hawks and the Flames all to the city build the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, build the Omni Coliseum, and things don't turn out quite as expected. And Atlanta's certainly not alone in this. They, in many ways, pioneered this approach to getting teams, this very corporatized approach to luring pro sports. If you look at San Diego, if you look at Tampa, if you look at New Orleans, Charlotte, so many cities, particularly in the Sun Belt, modeled their approach to becoming major league after what Atlanta did. And oftentimes you find the same problems. Like Atlanta, a lot of City's got a lot of teams really quickly, and it proved tough to digest. Atlanta and a number of other expansion cities also have a lot of transplants from other parts of the country who bring in existing sports loyalties. And whether it's Atlanta or San Diego or wherever you look, um, people didn't just start being interested in sports when the big leagues got to town. Particularly in warm weather places, there were a lot abundant outdoor activities to engage, and you didn't need the major leagues to be a participant in sports. And there were plenty of local attractions, too, in places like Atlanta, Certainly college football, stock car racing, boating, golfing. Um, professional wrestling had a tremendous audience. <laughs> a, a wide range of demographics had a wide, wide range of sports that appealed to them. And people didn't simply give up on them because there were teams wearing Atlanta across their chest. And but they rode the way between 60 and 76. Like the NFL, people think the NFL now with 32 teams. They only had 13 teams. The NBA only had eight. Major League Baseball only 16. So that's when they really started expanding. You saw when Cleveland moved to L.A. and the Rams moved out, which is ironically, they're playing in the Super Bowl right now in, in a week. And, uh, <laughs> and certainly so. But that was all. You had all that excitement in terms of the towns were the, the leagues were looking to expand. Now it's a lot harder to get the teams. You know, people are trying to whatever. But it seemed like back in those between 60 and 76, the leagues were looking to expand. Atlanta's like, look, we're in the South. We're, we, want, we want to show everybody in the country that we're made it. We're a big league town. And I think the, the idea of being a big league town is to bring big league teams in there. 
Yes, absolutely. And Atlanta takes advantage of the competition those leagues largely faced. Even with baseball, with the prospective Continental League, that played a role in baseball expansion. With the NBA, you have the ABA. With, with hockey, you have the World Hockey Association. And with the NFL, obviously, you have the American Football League. So there's a lot of pressure out there, a lot of competition for cities. Um, it's almost inevitable pro sports was going to grow out of being something that exe- basically existed in the Great Lakes region and then the, in the Northeast Corridor. As the country expanded, as more cities had enough people with enough discretionary income to get to afford uh, to go to games, it was inevitable the leagues were going to expand. And a city like Atlanta played a, a pioneering role in making that possible. But it was like, you know, they brought the Braves from Milwaukee. Milwaukee had the Braves had moved up from Boston to Milwaukee, only been to Milwaukee like 10 years. They had uh, Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews. I mean, they had a team that is an exciting team. They weren't drawing well in Milwaukee from another factors because they played in a terrible stadium. They In Atlanta, you had in the book, you said how they built the stadium before the Braves even, they even announced the Braves. But almost from day one, they didn't even draw. Like they drew, they sold out the first game, but then they were getting terrible attendance. And you mentioned how when Aaron had his home run chase, there were some games, like when he hit 711 home runs, they had like 1,300, 1,400 fans show up. The attendance, we criticize Atlanta now, even today, Atlanta gets criticized constantly, but it has been a problem since like the late 60s with the attendance. Well, absolutely. I mean, in the fall, the Braves are like, oh, God, high school football starting. So from like the beginning of September onward, the idea that you were ever going to get a crowd to a Braves game unless they were in a pennant race was unlikely. There'd be five or six football games in Fulton County alone that would have 10,000 people at them. The Braves would have three or four thousand people in the stands. In 1969, when the Braves win the NL West in the first year of the divisional configuration, on the weekend when they host the Mets for two home games, those games are the fourth and fifth best drawing sporting events in the region that weekend. The Georgia football game is one, Georgia Tech is two, and number three is the Falcons game because Johnny Unitas was coming to town and people were excited to see him. He'd never come to Atlanta before. So the Braves were second fiddle even in the weekend of their greatest triumph in their early years in town. And then you mentioned about even the Falcons, when the Falcons were able to play off the whole fight between the AFL and the NFL, when the, and each team, wanted, each league wanted, sort of wanted to be in the, in the Atlanta market, and they initially sold well. They were selling the tickets for the corporate sponsors in Atlanta, but no one would show up for the games, and then they were terrible. I, I like the one stat you said. In 1967, they drafted 16 players, and none made the team. It sounds like here down in Miami a little bit, somehow, some of their drafting, but <laughs> that would be hard to imagine. You would draft 16 players, and not one person makes the team. Well, I, th- I think a problem in this era in particular, and I think one of the, the themes of my book is the significance of having ownership that relies on experts in the particular sport to run the teams. In this expansion era, that was not the common sense. You had, for example, with the Falcons, a man named Rankin Smith, whom everybody I spoke to liked very much, thought he was very pleasant, got along with his family, but he was an insurance salesman, and he would rely on guys who were his associates to play these prominent roles in the team's organization. Uh, Over time, franchises have gotten better at having football experts or hockey experts or baseball experts or or whatever the activity is playing those central roles. But I I think to some extent you had a lot of businessmen who got involved with pro sports who underestimated underestimated the degree of specificity to this particular business. And it certainly showed on the field in a lot of places. I mean, it was funny in your book, you mentioned how the Atlanta Hawks came and for the basketball team, they came from St. Louis. And again, they, they were run terribly. But you said the one 
team that sort of got the town excited was the Flames, uh, who came in and and nobody and there was not even an, a hockey rink in all of Georgia, and no one knew the rules, but people just got excited about the game. Sort of when the Kings, when the LA Kings came to LA, and people were like, we don't even know follow hockey, but it became popular. Uh, but it was like that was the one team that sort of got everyone excited about, it, even though they had no no following. There was nobody who's playing hockey or anything. It just became po- popular for a number of years. But even then, the Flames after ten years left. Yeah, I, I think I think that's an issue a lot of Sun Belt markets have faced when they've gotten the NHL. There has been this initial wave of appeal because it's such a novel experience, particularly when Atlanta did. They were completely on an island. It's not like it is now where there's like, you know, a half dozen NHL teams in the South. They were there was nothing like it as an attraction. It was the go to night out for Atlanta's elite for several years. But eventually that waned a little bit and in particular they had ownership trouble uh, with their owner Tom Cousins got into some issues with his real estate business. He needed some some cash and ends up selling the team in a very lucrative deal to some oil men from Alberta. So certainly what you see in Atlanta, not only with the Flames, but later with the Thrashers and uh, with a number of the other uh, southern and western NHL markets, the Coyotes most notably right now, you, you just see the same problems occurring over and over again. But oftentimes these teams develop this niche base of appeal that there's 10,000 people who are just mad about the team. But developing the casual fan who on a Tuesday night is going to turn in in the middle of the second period and stick with the game, I think that proves to be the difficulty for a lot of the uh, Southern and Western hockey teams. I mean, the name title of your book is called Loserville, but as we think about the Braves, I mean, they just won the World Series and uh, they had uh, many years of uh, winning their division. Everybody knows, certainly if you're Met fans, you would not be, would not be called Atlanta Loserville. But the point is that even the time, though, that when Ted Turner bought the teams, I think that stabilized the Hawks and and, and the Braves. They weren't going to leave because Turner's investment and, and everything. But again, it's just I think that was the fact the factor of these teams is is that even when they've won, they haven't drawn that well. And that's as opposed to they've really not ever captured totally the, the market. Oh, completely. The title Loserville is not a commentary on the present. Atlanta's obviously doing very well with Atlanta United and the Braves and Georgia just down the road winning the national championship. It's a certainly a commentary in the 60s and 70s. But in terms of attendance, I think one of the major problems is you have a region where there's so many people in and out of it. Not only transplants from the north, but also Atlanta is such a hub of transplants from across the south. People going there because it's such a major economic center that uh, people, I guess they tend to relate to the teams more as they would any other consumer product, as opposed to the teams being this durable source of loyalty. You're from Boston or New York or Philadelphia. Your dad went to the games and his dad went to the games and his dad went to the games. It's this multi-generational kind of family epic for a lot of people supporting these teams. In a way, it just isn't for the Braves, not only because they're a newer team, but also because there's so much uh, movement in and out of uh, the region. It's like a TV show. Like some people, they, they watch Yellowstone all the time. They can't miss it. They go, well, this year it's bad, so I'm not going to watch it anymore. You know, so anyone knows the, the New York teams, you know, the, they watch it even more when their teams are bad to yell at them. But the one thing that and I find so intriguing is because we're following the Tampa Bay, what they're going to do with their stadium. And certainly we're in South Florida with the Marlins Park and how they were that was able to develop mm-hmm. it. Atlanta continually builds stadiums. Like when people say, wait, you had the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, then you had the Georgia Dome, and the Georgia Dome, wait, they tore it down? Like there was only, you know, it was only in existence for a few years, and now you have the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They keep figuring out how to build stadiums. The Braves now are on their truest park, their third stadium. So some of these other cities like Tampa just simply cannot build stadiums. And look at Oakland and look at L.A. They've had all these, they had football for 25 years because no one could build a stadium. But Atlanta has shown one thing is that there's a, they can figure out how to build these stadiums. 
Well, I, I think in Atlanta, it seems to be a, an issue of ownership, that every ownership group that comes in wants their own building that's tailored to their particular wants. In the case of the Georgia Dome, that's in large part because Arthur Blank comes in, buys the team, ends up wanting essentially a, a venue of his own, which becomes Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the home of both the Falcons as well as the Atlanta United soccer team, which has drawn well. One thing Atlanta has gotten better at over time, though, is finding another way to pay for it than directly just asking the taxpayers. Back in 65, when they built Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, it's just a property tax. Everybody in town is paying for the stadium. That does not tend to fly in most markets now. You've got to find some other more clever way to do it. Have a tax on rental cars or hotels or, or, or meals or uh, a tax on alcohol or cigarettes or lottery tickets, something of that like. So people are choosing to be taxed or it's the idea that it's out-of-towners being taxed. Atlanta has certainly used some of those methodology. They've been good at getting corporate sponsorships for the stadium. Arthur Blank actually footed a big part of the bill for the uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So the percentage of the stadium that is publicly financed with that stadium is roughly the same as the uh, back in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium back in the 60s. So even though it's this you know billion-dollar epic kind of stadium, it, it, as, as a matter of public expenditure, it's basically the same as it was back in the 60s. In the case of Turner Field, they did a good job getting the taxpayers to finance it nationally because of the IOC element of it being an Olympic stadium. Yeah, and then certainly, I mean, I was just there for the Hawks game, and I think the Hawks with Trey Young, again, it's the superstar player that brings people in. You mentioned the book about Pistol Pete when he played there and how he drew some of the attendance, even though they didn't play well. Uh, I think that's the one thing. I mean, the, you can start to see the Hawks starting to get a, a big pull. I mean, I paid a lot for my ticket, so I knew that there was <laughs> for the playoff game against the Bucks. So there was definitely an, you know, interest in, in the Hawks right now. I think you could argue even at this point that he's the second most consequential player in the history of the franchise behind Wilkins because he's, he's become such a national focus, become such a draw, not quite at the level Wilkins was at his peak, you know, the human highlight reel of that. But I think there's more focus on the Hawks now, not only because of their on-court success, but people specifically wanting to see Trey Young play. Um, during the Maravich era, the problem was the team, which had been pretty good when it got to town, the St. Louis Hawks had won their division in their final year. But they blew up their roster, rebuilt around Maravich, and it just didn't work. Um, so they struggled for much of that time period, even though Maravich was a particularly excellent attraction on the road. Even though the Hawks drew poorly at home, for two of, two of the four seasons Maravich was in Atlanta, the Hawks were the best-drawing road team in the league because people who heard about Pete Maravich playing at LSU wanted a chance to see him in person across the country. Yeah, I mean, about Trey Young, when I went to the store, I mean, they just sell, you can't even hardly buy Hawks jerseys. Everything is Trey Young jerseys. It was, he is yeah. super duper duper popular. And then the one last thing is they just finished the Truist Park, and I haven't been to this one of the state baseball teams I haven't been to, uh, and it's, but it's in Cobb County, and I guess that was one of the issues is they chose, they couldn't get, they could get the stadium built downtown and where the, the Mercedes-Benz is built and where Omni or the Phipps Arena is, but what they call it, State Farm now. And then, uh, so they ended yeah. up building it in uh, Cobb County. And then I guess there was some controversy about saying, okay, now we're going to build it in the suburbs, even though, look, Detroit's built in the suburbs. A lot of these cities had been building stadiums in the suburbs and they moved it back to the central business district. Yeah, sir. I mean, certainly part of the issue with that is it was done in kind of a cloak and dagger fashion. Like all of a sudden they announced, hey, we got a stadium deal in Cobb County kind of out of nowhere. I mean, there'd been rumbles about stuff like that, but the idea that this was actually in place happened essentially overnight. And it was also weird because it was this, this kind of unusual special taxing district of businesses uh, in a particular uh, business zone that ended up paying for it was their financing mechanism, which prevented, which taxpayers really didn't have any say over it the way it, uh, it, it came into being. 
I mean, it certainly does reflect where much of the fan base was. Um, at the time, the Braves released a map of where these season ticket holders were for the Braves. And baseball tends to have fewer than other sports because it's such a long calendar. Nonetheless, the vast majority of them were in affluent northern suburbs like uh, Cobb County. So it certainly reflects where the strongest base of support was. Well, Clayton, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. I know we're here in West Palm Beach, close to Atlanta. Everybody who has to fly sometimes has to go through Atlanta. But it was yeah. uh, great to have you on our show to talk about your book, Loserville. Best luck in terms of sales. And it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, any way you want to go look at it, it's, it's available uh, to everybody now. Thanks so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. Thanks a lot, Clayton. Nicely done there with uh, Clayton Truder here on Iron Sports. So, Ira, about time to wrap it up. Uh, so what are your plans this week? I know you got some traveling to do. Well, San Francisco, I, I, it's hard not to not go to the last run of Coach K. I wish it was in Philadelphia, but I really want to see it. I've been at Duke. I went to Duke Law School, so I'm excited to see this and uh, see if they can win. Look, they're going to be an underdog against Texas Tech. If they play Gonzaga the next round, they'll be an underdog. So he has to pull up two upsets to get to the uh, Final Four in, uh, in New Orleans. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Clayton Truder. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.